Okay, um, so um, as a lot of you will know by now from all the events that have been going on, um, that in the summer of 1848, Britain came close to all-out revolution, really, or at least that's what the government expected. And as you know, there was a monster gathering announced by Chartists for April the 10th in the common just out here, now the park, um, to mark the collecting of a reputed 5 million signature petition. So this is a paper of sort of two halves, really. The first half dealing with military precautions, some archival research that I've done into that. So I'll show you a little bit of that. And a lot of today is going to be about archives, really, and what we can learn from them. And then um, the second half, we'll be looking at the, the image and the, and the crowd itself and see what, what, what we can um, learn about the crowd with your help. Um, but um, the first thing I noticed, because I've only just sort of started this, I'm only a couple of years into this project, and I noticed straight away that these days you can almost do a lot of your research without leaving your desk. Uh, so much of this, these archives are digitised. Um, but I want to show the benefit of actually going into the archives yourself, because it, 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 there's benefits to both, really. Um, and by using some of these to show you how anxious the government were in 1848, but also how close the Chartists came to achieving political change. So, um, could I have the next slide, please? Thank you. Um, so, on a visit to the National Archives at Kew, I stumbled upon an intriguing record. And as you can see on the right, there's hand handwriting. Chartist riots, 1848. Well, I'd seen the image at the bottom there, which was taken from the um, London Illustrated News um, of this gathering. And I thought, well, you know, that's not what I would call a riot anyway. Um, and, but this was in a, a box of military archives, and there was um, references to the medals from Napoleonic Wars and, and all sorts of things. And I realised straight away that when you're doing archive research, this, I think, happens quite often you get a box or something you think well, what is this I nearly sent it back but I just waded through all this stuff and at the bottom here was the envelope with this Chartist riots in it and um, inside sure enough were details about the troop emplacements in London for April the 10th um, next slide please and the first one was this intriguing reference to biscuits spirits and salt pork now, um, in case you're getting hungry, I, I should stress we're not talking about chocolate hobnobs here. These were sort of military rations, hard tack biscuits, really, you wouldn't, you know, probably break your teeth on them, actually. Um, and, the, and the spirits were probably a low-grade rum just to make the water palatable. But it's really detailed, and the handwriting isn't too bad, um, but I'll help you with it. So the, um, the covering document was a memorandum of supplies of provisions and spirits deposited at the undermentioned places in reserve for the use of troops. And it's written on orders from Wellington, who'd been got out of retirement at this point. He's quite an old man. And his uh, deputy, Fitzroy Somerset, issued these orders. Uh, and I won't read the whole lot in detail, but some of them are worth looking at. So we've got... Admiralty Horse Guards, 10 days supply of salt pork biscuits and spirits for 5,000 men. That's 50,000 rations. Somerset House, 10 days supply of salt pork biscuits and spirits for 300 men. Bank of England, 10 days supply, same stuff, 
2,000 rations, and then it goes on um, in the Royal Mint. And then if we could have the next slide, please. Um, this next one's interesting, Admiralty, Admiralty House, 50,000 rations, so that's 10 days supply, and the Tower is even more interesting. Tower of London, 9,000 rations, and we've got uh, 15 days. So they really were expecting something big to be kicking off on, on, on April the 10th, um, and even the deposition at the Tower, there are separate orders there for it to be ready to be moved at short notice, to any other place necessary, including places like the Bank of England, uh, the official post office, which isn't, isn't like a modern post office. So what, what, what we've got in all is a mobilization of 11,000 troops for 10 to 15 days. Um, so, you know, they were clear, clearly expecting some serious insurrection. Um, but to see what was behind this paranoia, we need to look across the channel. Uh, on the next slide, um, please. So, um, the British government were on high alert by this time due to these recent spate of revolutions across Europe. And by April alone, the three that, that I've listed up here had already happened. Um, the French monarchy had been overthrown in favour of the Second Republic. And before the year was out, there were revolutions right across states that we now know as Belgium, Poland, Romania, Hungary, and the Ukraine. So, you know, it, in a way, you could say, yes, they were right to be concerned. Um, and if we look at the next slide, um, you can see that there were, um, you know, there were actual riots. Um, I mean, there wasn't a riot here on the 10th of April, but in the lead up to it, um, there's a planned meeting on March the 6th convened by an organiser, Charles Cochrane, who ran scared when the legality of holding a meeting in Trafalgar Square was questioned because it was within a mile of the House of Commons. He pulled out another sort of ma maverick um, author of Penny of Dreadful Novels, George Reynolds, went ahead with the meeting and that quickly did descend into, into riot disorder and looting. And, um, and as the table on the right shows, you can see that the ages of um, a lot of those arrested was really quite low. Um, under 21-year-olds accounting for two-thirds of the arrests. Um, and that's something that it might be interesting to look at in, in connection with, with Kennington later on, certainly with the, with, with the photo. Um, and, you know, as author David Goodway suggests, crowds could be a magnet for pickpockets and opportunists. That nothing changes, really, does it? Um, so Reynolds thought, well, we'd have another meeting, and this time we'll, um, we'll move it south of the river to Kennington Common. Um, that meeting, although it was, it was away from Parliament, um, it was banned again, and I think this was the, um, this was the banning order for the 13th of March um, um, meeting. Um, but again, they went ahead anyway, and again, there was some, some rioting. Um, in, um, just down the road, I think. Uh, what's the next? Um, Camberwell, that's it, yeah. Say I'm not from South London. Um, yeah, so, um, but the Chartist leadership themselves had been sort of rather caught off guard by this because the, this big petition wasn't really planned to be issued so soon and they weren't, they weren't planning a meeting of this, this, this size at that point. But 
they needed to do something quick. And so the, the petition was sort of expedited and the meeting was planned again for at Kennington for the 10th of April, as you all know. So um, if we could have the next slide, please. Um, a frenzy of correspondence occurred over the, um, the weekend of the 8th and 9th of April. The thing that really struck me about it was how last minute it all is. Um, you, you'd imagine, I mean, they, this meeting had been announced a while before, but there's correspondence flying about between high-level government people, really like they're just sort of planning this at the last minute. They um, requisitioned the electric telegraph, um, and um, pensioners, were, were, pensioners were brought out of retirement, like sort of equivalent of Chelsea pensioners, I'm, I'm assuming, probably younger maybe, but um, and as well as all these troops that we've seen, they um, decided to, uh, they had learned some lessons from earlier events, like um, I mean, Peterloo had been 30 years before, but they knew not to confront people with troops, keep everything at, at arm's length. Um, and um, so the, but the idea was to keep the troops mostly north of the river, blockade the bridges with uh, about 4,000 police, and then get um, um, basically sign up um, thousands and thousands of special constables. Um, and again, this meeting was banned, and here we've got the banning notice for the April the 10th meeting which, as you can see, uh, get another interesting thing in the archive. This was just in pieces. You have to sort of, you know, spread it all, um, lay it all out. And, um, yeah, I wish the top was there, but there's enough anyway. Um, so, uh, another slide, please. So, yeah, as I say, the, the troops were to hold these key strategic locations north of the river, the charters would be kept south of the river, police were manning the bridges, and the special constables would be signed up. The useful, interesting bits were the bridges, and they're on the, on the right, if we can zoom in there. So you can see Vauxhall, Vauxhall Bridge, 200, Westminster Bridge, 500, these are all police. Um, Hungerford 50, Waterloo Bridge 500, and the Blackfriars Bridge has got um, mounted police there as well. Um, now, I always thought that this, all these so-called sort of 80,000 special constables was a hugely exaggerated number. Um, and first time I gave this talk, I didn't even bother to sort of go into them because I just didn't, didn't, didn't think it was feasible. But as you'll see from the next slide, um, I normally photograph things in the archive. There were too many. I just thought, well, I'm just going to video these instead. And it just goes on and on and on. I've only got about two of these pages here. But these are all names and addresses of, of special constables. Um, most were conscripted by their employers to guard places of work. Um, and this might have had a side effect of preventing people attending that would have otherwise attended. Um, some refused, and I found papers where people have lost jobs because they refused. Um, and um, the totals—it's it's a bit hard to tell because we've got a total on the on the on the right here of certain locations of twenty-two and a half thousand. Um, but if you see on the, that, there's there's other locations as well. If you see on the next slide, well, I've got another video. Um, as I say, it just goes on and on. Um, 
again, we've got totals on the bottom. We've got another one there with about five and a half thousand. And on the right, we've got another 27,000. What we don't know is if there's overlap with the others, where these totals come from. But clearly, there was a lot, lot of these. And um, some were even recompensed financially for this, for losing a day's pay. Most were work workers and craftsmen, but quite a lot were middle class volunteers, including Dickens, supposedly, and the future Napoleon III of France. Um, and then on the, on the next slide, um, we can see, um, and this is really interesting, um, they went armed. And so on the, on the left, what we've got here is an, is an order for payment for truncheons. 5,000 truncheons um, that have been specially manufactured for the occasion. I've got reason to believe there's more. They also refer to staves and everything. So again, they've even armed these special constables. Um, and on the right, um, you can see a lot of them kept their truncheons as souvenirs afterwards. And all these decorations were done later on. Um, they, they, they're sort of quite fascinating. They, they, they still turn up at auctions these days, actually. Um, so, this brings us to the, uh, the photograph, the daguerreotype on the next slide. So, um, last week I had the privilege of, of actually seeing the originals of these, um, these images. And, I mean, the, the images, again, thanks to digitisation, these things are they're all over, and we and thankfully for that, anyone can can see them. If you just Google the event, you'll get these two images. But I thought it would be interesting to see them in person, and they really are objects of beauty. Um, they're about four by three inches in a in a little paper frame, still in quite good condition. Um, but the thing that fascinated me was the inscription on the back because um, it's, it's a fairly simple inscription. It just says, Great Chartist Meeting, taken at Kennington Common, April the 10th, 1848, taken from nature. That's interesting. But what I didn't realise was the archivist is a specialist in um, royal handwriting. That's Queen Victoria's handwriting. She's actually written this out herself on both of these, probably acting as Albert's you know, assistant, if you like, because it was him that had the interest. Um, but also accompanying them are two faded, very, very faded salt prints of these, which I didn't know existed, which you can hardly see. But what it means is that they were prints being taken within a very few days, and they're stuck on the back of um, one of the thank you letters to the special constable. So the Home Secretary has sent that as a souvenir to Albert. Albert has stuck this on the back. And um, who knows when he got the originals, but he certainly, he says, photo this is in his handwriting, photograph view taken of the Kennington meeting by Mr. Kilburn. So there's a personal connection there, and we know he already knew Kilburn, the photographer. So it's interesting because there is quite a bit of debate um, between historians about whether these photographs were commissioned by Albert himself in some way as a memento, or whether they were government surveillance, we'll come to that in a minute, or maybe the London Illustrated News had actually paid for them because they used them to do the engraving that we saw at the beginning, but actually, we still don't know. It's probably, a, it could be a mixture of all of those things, but I'm now wondering whether Kilburn himself 
you know, it's a bit of an entrepreneurial shot on his part because he knew he was going to be able to sell these things. Um, and he took a day off work as a portrait photographer to do it. Um, but anyway, w wherever they come from, they, 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 th this Royal Connection does, sh does sort of throw an interesting light on Albert's later interest in Chartism. Um, but from my point of view, they present a unique opportunity to study a 19th century crowd um, using actual real evidence-based approach, because a lot of what a lot of my work has to be sort of semi-speculative. So, um, if I could have the next slide, please. Um, just, I'm only a part-time historian. In my day job, I'm a graphic designer, and so I work with image manipulation quite a bit. So using Photoshop to combine those two images together wasn't very difficult for me. And I wanted to try and get an idea of what that whole horizon was like, because on the two images, you don't get the whole thing. And what was important to me was to try and match this to a contemporary map to see how much of the common we've actually got. And um, the key to it is the chimney in the horizon. Um, so if I could have the next slide, please. Um, so this is an 1840s map, and um, I've matched the buildings along that horizon to the horizon on the photograph, and to my surprise, we've actually got the whole length of the common in the distance. So there's a lot more of the event in that photograph than, than I previously thought. Um, obviously, there's great chunks of the common that aren't, but we've probably got about half the, half the event. Um, the other things that's worth looking at um, are um, the, uh, well, the, the, the factory, the oil of vitriol factory, that's the chimney, and it was Thomas Farmer's factory, and it was, um, it was quoted as being renowned for the appalling sulfuric and muriatic fumes. I love that word, muriatic. Um, I don't think you'd want to be spending too much time close by it. Um, and it's odd, you know, th there wasn't a lot of, um, later than that, a lot of the industry was moved away from, you know, close to central London. Um, but I've used the sort of dotted lines here to sort of go back to where it's, you know, I, when I discovered this, Horn's Tavern, um, again, it's a sort of lesson in, in, um, in, historical work. I thought I'd actually discovered this for myself because yeah, you start reading around. It's been well known for quite a long time that this was this was the likely um location of the camera. Um but if we have the um next slide, um there we've got there's various pictures of, of the horns. This could have been what it looked like at the time. Um there's St Mark's in the background. <laughs> um and um I think the important thing about the horns is that it did provide a superb vantage point. Um, at that time, obviously, there weren't trees all along the edge, and there, and there wasn't um, there wasn't the, the Consorts Lodge there. So, um, the um, I think that I mean the, 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 the daguerreotype process is a really nasty, messy process. You had sort of have to use wet chemicals and pretty much work live with these wet wet materials. So it wouldn't be a case of taking it back and developing it later. So again, you know, a room in a tavern on one of those floors would be quite handy because they could he could have set up his um, equipment. Anyway, back to the picture on the next slide. Um, 
So yeah, it's worth having a look at, look, look at a few things. Now the, the first thing to look at is the, the road in the, in the foreground. And again, at one point I thought that we were in the park somewhere, but here we've got, we've got horse and carts and the railings are there, so there are people at this side of the railings. Um, you can see the, the two stages, which were sort of carts, vans there, called um, and there's two of them in sight we've got one there and there's one on the on the right at the background um, people are still arriving in the distance along farmer road there's a lot of activity going along there and also if we look at the top left of the picture there's um there's big gaps and i think um as anyone that came on the um on the event on the 10th of April this year, we'll know it actually still gets quite waterlogged there. And if, if you think back to the map, there was a pond there at one point. So, you know, some of these gaps between the crowd could have just been practical, just didn't want to get their feet wet. Um, so what time of day was, the, was this taken? That is critical because obviously if we're trying to gauge how many people were here, has the meeting started? Is it halfway through? Is it nearly finished? We don't know. But that's, we're really lucky here because it rained a lot the night before. Then we had reasonable sunshine until about, reputedly about 1.30, when by 2 o'clock there's an absolute downpour again. Now, we've got the sun coming from the south and the, and the chimneys um, over there on the second building in. Um, if we come to the right a bit, could, yeah, um, on those and some of the others. We can see good shadow, so I, I think you could, you could probably assume this was taken around midday, sometime between midday and, and one o'clock, which means the meeting is, is sort of underway. Uh, could be another vehicle still to arrive, but um, that's important. Um, but the other thing about it is the absolute quality of this. What is the social mix of people here? Um, and it's really interesting because we've got lots of people wearing top hats. Now, the first thought you might think well you know these are probably middle class people but actually you know your craftsmen and, and your workers if they're going out somewhere decent they're probably gonna they've probably got something that they might have might have got second hand a sort of sunday best and they want to look their best so you know top hats alone don't don't mean this is a higher social scale but we've got lots of other mix here not a lot of women um Although some on the some in 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 in, in various um, little groups, but some on the platforms. But there's an interesting uh, bottom left here, um, that uh, just to the right of the horse, a lovely old lady in a sort of plaid dress. And and th interesting to me is that she doesn't seem to have any interest in what's going on at all. She's sort of just going somewhere else, I think. Um, and the young lads in the centre, those, uh, there's one with a white, um, white coat, just sit, standing there. And I'm just wondering, you know, are there a couple of these pickpockets? Um, you know, but if the, even if they are, going to an event like this could have made them politically aware. Who knows what this did, experience of this did for them later in their lives. You know, I know when I was that age, well, I wasn't a pickpocket, but I did go to events that made a difference to my life, you know. Um, but the other thing is, and this absolutely fascinates me, with one exception, everyone's looking away from the camera. There's one guy down on the left that just seems to be staring towards the camera 
everyone else looking away. Now that makes me think that something is happening. The meeting hasn't, I always thought there's people hanging around waiting for something to start. I think there's something happening. Now you wouldn't hear in a lot of detail if there were speeches coming from either one of these vans. You're not going to hear really much about more than, more than about um, 100 yards away. But nevertheless, something's going on. Um, so um, if I could have the next slide, please. I'm just going to go back to um, a, a, another bit of archival evidence. And um, the, um, the organisers were hoping for an attendance of um, around 200,000. Clearly, the, the government were obviously preparing for something like that, or they wouldn't have taken all these precautions. But these, real, these are like real-time police memos taken at different points around the, uh, the march to, to come here. And they make interesting reading. And they also, because they are sort of real time, we like them texting back to headquarters. So we've got 9 a.m., 2000, about 2,000 assembled, assembled on Stepney Green. No appearance of their being armed. 10 a.m., the procession is moving from Russell Square around 10,000 principally mechanics. That's interesting. All peaceful. Finally, we've got a report from... Um, Bull's livery stables near here where the police were sort of holed up. The procession is now filing onto the common, but not the slightest appearance of arms or bludgeons. They formed from seven to eight deep, and at the time the procession arrived, they were then present on the common above 5,000 persons. And the approach is crowded with spectators, that's important. So we've got early indications that the crowd were peaceful and small, but obviously these numbers are, are, are only estimates. Um, but the striking thing about the Kennington meeting is that attendance figures were contentious then and they're still contentious now. Uh, within days, the press were reporting that rather than the 150 to 200,000 expected, that there might have only been 30,000 here. But historians still debate about whether this figure was in truth higher. So I thought I could maybe see if I could tackle this one. Now, if we look on the next slide... Um, you can see I've, uh, I haven't got the perspective grid that I had on the thing that Richard mentioned. That was really to get me a density. But to count, for counting purposes, these are obviously equal squares in terms of the number of people, but it's easier to count. Um, and it's based on um, a, 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 a scheme devised by Professor Herbert Jacobs, who was looking out of his office at Berkeley campus in 1967 at Vietnam War demonstrators and they were kind of big squares on the concrete and he realised that he could count people in the squares and it, was, it, it formed a sort of theory of people generally standing at arm's length unless there's pressure like a sort of mosh pit at a festival or, or a serious kind of police charge or something like that. So I've laid this grid over the Kennington image but um, what I'd quite like you guys to do, um, this this square in the middle, um, it'd be really good, because people count things differently, it'd be really good to have an idea how many you think there are in that square. Um, you've got, um, I'll check with Richard, that's the yellow. <laughs> Couple of minutes, get, you know, you, you can't, it's not gonna be a precise um, exercise. 100? 220, thank you. Any advance on that? I'm sounding like an auctioneer here, especially with me. 
90, we've got 90, 100, 200, 200. Have we got anything higher? 289. Okay, we're getting up for 300. Okay, anyone, anyone more than that? Okay, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Why don't we say 500? Because I want to be generous about this. So um, if we have the next slide, um, that's your square with the... Uh, there's a couple with 500, but that's on the right. That's, that's, that's your one where you guys are probably thinking under 300. Uh, and I've done that with all of those because I thought the same. But I want to be careful about this because it's, it's quite important. When you total up this whole, um, this whole sheet, you can see at the top that you get a, a total of actually, it's just under 4,000 using this method. So I'm adding another 1,000 there, and we've got 5,000. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that in that image that we've got there, there aren't more than 5,000 people, and we're guessing around midday. Um, but obviously, that it's not as simple as that, because um, we've got the rest of the park. We know that. We, we looked at the map, so there's probably twice the, twice the area of the park a little bit less dense. Let's say another 3,000 in that bit. Let's allow another 2,000 to arrive later. Um, spectators, clearly there are people um, not wanting to come onto the park itself. In fact, the um, pre-Raphaelite artists Holman Hunt and Millet were here, but they didn't want to be potentially arrested, so they stayed behind the railings. Quite a lot of that, so we've got um, 3,000 of those. And let's say and we know that people were hiring rooms and looking out of the, all the buildings. Another 2,000, 15,000. Um, now, this is still contentious. Um, but I think that, you know, if, even if we keep adding a bit on here, I, I'm re really surprised if there's more than 25,000 in this whole gathering. That's where I'm getting to. So... Um, should we be surprised about that? Um, well, the next slide might help, um, help us to work that one out. Um, now, I go to a lot of music festivals, and I've got a pretty good idea what 60,000 to 200,000 people look like. Um, and this is a download festival in uh, 2012. The Prodigy are playing, so it's the, it's the main act. We know there's 100,000 tickets sold for that. So it's reasonable to assume there's probably about 50,000 people in that frame um, because there's about another three stages going on at the same time. Now, if you compare the density of that with our image, I think it shows that, 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 that it's the density that's different and we shouldn't be surprised that there, that there are less. Um, so... Uh, on the next slide, this helps a little bit to, to sort of show how this works. Um, now, there's, there's, um, the work of Jake Jacobs has sort of been superseded by Keith Steele, who um, actually advises police and event organisers now. And he's done a lot of work on, you know, what is, what is safe, what's comfortable, what's, what's common. And um, it looks like um, the average, I think, is somewhere probably between these two for our event. Um, but the interesting thing is, if we go between 
these two, maybe the average for our event is one and a half people per square meter. If you look at the area of the common of 92,000 square meters, we've got a theoretical capacity of 130,000 people. So we've still got a problem here. Um, I'm thinking, is there a problem with my methodology? I don't know. This is a work in progress. But if it was low, why was it low? Where was everyone? Well, Monday had pretty much become a working day by then. I don't know. Would you agree, Katrina? Um, you know, there had been the sort of St. Monday thing, but by then it was a working day. So maybe people were at work. Maybe they were signed up as specials. They wanted to come, but they couldn't come. Or maybe their friends had been signed up as specials and they weren't, but they were just frightened to come because of things like these, these notices. Also, police presence, military, all over the place. Um, or were they, were they stuck north of the river? I mean, this is the first example of kettling, and the biggest example of kettling that, that we've ever seen, probably. Once the, um, the main processions had come through, the bridges were shut, maybe people couldn't get here. Um, I think the thing to remember is that with any sort of... Um, demonstration, even today, and I know myself, there's things I want to go to and sometimes I can't go. And for every person here, there was probably another 10 that would have loved to have been here. So you can't measure the impact of the event in terms of the actual numbers that were here. You need to think in terms of the, of the projection of it. So was the government justified? Well, we can only decide this ourselves really, but I mean, it depends on your point of view. Chartists were clearly massively outnumbered and, and outgunned, really. Um, no doubt the government would have justified it, citing the evidence of these recent rioting and, 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 and other Chartist meetings. But the Chartists, I think, would have viewed it as simply an excuse on the part of the government for this excessive show of force. And the final push that really did, three or four months later, finally sub subjugate the Chartists completely. Um, 1848 marked a turning point and led some Chartists to question the policy of moral rather than physical force. And indeed, in the months following Kennington, some meetings did become increasingly violent. And as you know, if you were here the other week, the William Coffey talk, there were arrests and people transported, etc. So, um, if you could um, flip the next one, please. So, what, what are the implications about this? Um, on first sight, this theory of mine might be appearing to downplay the significance of this great Chartist meeting. But actually, when I start thinking about this, I realise it does exactly the opposite. What it means is that a, a relatively small number of people managed to create a perception of a, a, a clear and imminent threat. So what we need to be looking about is not the numbers themselves, but the projection of power. And this is where I think my work is heading, about the, the mismatch between perception and projection of, of power of, of, of radical groups. Um, but of course, you know, the government would really have to realise that although you can subjugate them and you can send them to Australia, you can't suppress ideas. And as we all know, within 70 years, five of the six points of the Charter became enshrined in law. And the legacy of the Chartists now, I would argue, you know, is detected across a whole broad range of political views under the, un, under the broad left. And we can argue about whether they become communists, you know, liberals, 
Labour. It, 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 it's, it's that broad sweep I think we need to look at and the whole sort of trade union movement and, and everything. Um, but I thought um, rather, than, rather than finish this myself, I thought the, the best thing I could do is leave you with the words of Tom Collins, who made a brilliant rendition a few weeks ago at the, at the, at the event that we had here. Um, the Fergus O'Connor's own words, and Fergus O'Connor was the, was the leader, I mean, he was very much a sort of um, unwell and almost broken man by this, but the, but the speech he made and Tom's um, version of it, it was just brilliant. And so um, we're going to play this over the image and just kind of imagine what it might have been like there that day to hear that. And, um, you know, in, in which he pleads for orderly contact and defiantly, in the face of what's going on, implores the Chartists to march onward in the face of tyranny. So, last slide, please. Thank you.